Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons, following podcast is from the Sword of the Spirit Bible Conference. This is the first morning service of Sunday the 22nd of February 2015, entitled Opportunity, and the Bible reading is taken from Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 20. Here's Brother Dave Kistler. Jeremiah chapter number 8. By way of introduction, let me share something with you. A couple of years ago, in fact, it would have been uh, 2007, uh, I was preaching in the state of Virginia in the United States, and the service was uh, about at this part of the service. I just started speaking, and through the doors at the back of the auditorium, a very tall man, about six feet, four inches tall, walked in, and I recognized him immediately as Doug Carragher. Doug is a friend of mine, has been since 1997. And Doug sat down in the very back of the auditorium, very long auditorium, and at the end of the service, he came up to me and said, Dave, he said, what are you doing for breakfast tomorrow morning? I said, well, I don't have anything necessarily planned. He said, I'm going to come by and pick you up, going to take you to one of the local restaurants here in the city uh, where I was preaching. And so sure enough, the next morning he did that, and we went to what's called an IHOP. Any of you know what IHOP is? International House of Pancakes. All right, Brother Larry's got his hand up. But anyway, we went to an IHOP, sat across the table from each other, And uh, Doug said, I want to share some things with you about my life that uh, you do not yet know. He said, I met you for the first time in 1997. And sure enough, uh, we had met at that time. He was an enlisted man in the United States military. And when I met him in 1997, the Lord really got a hold of his heart. He surrendered to go into the ministry. And from 1997 to 2007, God had done some amazing things in his life. He is now the director of a mission agency called Armed Forces Baptist Mission. It is a ministry that ministers primarily to U.S. military personnel, uh, literally all around the United States and, and literally all around the world. Well, I knew all of that, but what I didn't know about Doug was this. He said, Dave, in 1994, 1995... He said, three years or so before I met you, he said, a gentleman came to me and said, Doug, I want to offer you a phenomenal opportunity. He said, it's going to be a process, what I'm offering to you, whereby people literally around the world will never have to go to a shopping center to purchase anything. They'll not have to go to a store. They'll not have to go to a market. He said they'll be able to sit at their computer, peck on the computer keys with their fingers, and they'll be able to purchase anything from motor oil to diapers. And uh, he said, it's going to be the greatest thing in the world. And he said, we're going to call this venture the store without walls. The store without walls. Now, my friend Doug looked at me and he said, Dave, I thought that was the most lunatic idea I'd ever heard in my life. He said, what woman does not want to actually go to the market to purchase things? Why would she want to purchase all that from her home? So he said, I said to this guy, I don't think that's going to fly. I don't think that's going to go. I'm not interested in it whatsoever whatsoever. Then he got very serious and he said, Dave, let me tell you something. I wish I hadn't told that guy that because he said, if I had taken up his offer, if I'd gotten in on the ground floor of this new venture, he said, I wouldn't have to be traveling around trying to raise money for my ministry. He said, I'd be very, very independently wealthy. In fact, he said, at this point, if I'd taken him up on his offer, I'd probably be a millionaire several times over. He said, because they chose not to call that venture the store without walls, they chose instead to call it eBay. How many of you know what eBay is? True story. My friend Doug looked at me and he said, Dave, you know, it's one thing to miss a financial opportunity. To be offered something, not take advantage of it, it go by and you never get a chance at it again. It's one thing to miss a financial opportunity. But he said, it's something else altogether to miss a spiritual opportunity. And you know what? He's right. This week, these days that you're here, 
are opportunities that God's giving you to make decisions spiritually in your life and for God to do wonderful things in your life. Don't miss what God's trying to do. Now, the reason I'm saying all that is I want you to look at Jeremiah chapter 8, and I want you to let your eyes rest, if you would, please, on verse number 20, which is one of the most amazing verses in all the Old Testament. In fact, it's one of the most well-known verses in all the Old Testament. Growing up as a boy, this very verse was framed behind a piece of glass hanging on a wall in our house. I saw it from the time I was a young man. In fact, I committed it to memory very early in life. But to be honest with you, I didn't have a clue what the verse was really talking about. Look at Jeremiah 8 verse 20, which just simply says this, The harvest is past. The summer is ended, and we are not, would you say the last word out loud? We are not saved. Now, I don't want to commit a trespass this morning that sometimes we as preachers commit. We make assumptions that those that are listening to us know the context of a single verse of Scripture like this, which is a great verse. I want you to know I didn't understand what this verse was really talking about. I didn't understand the context of it. So what I want to do this morning is have you back up in the chapter just a little bit to verse number 15. And I want you to understand the context of verse 20. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Verse 15 says this. We looked for peace, but no good came, and for a time of health, and behold, trouble. At the time of the writing of Jeremiah chapter number 8, the nation of Israel has been delivered into captivity in the land of Babylon because of their sin. It's called the Babylonian captivity. They had sinned against the Lord and so heinously sinned against the Lord that the Lord allowed a foreign invader by the name of Babylon, the country Babylon, to come down into the land of Israel, capture them, carry many of them off back to Babylon where they would hold them in captivity for a number of decades. By the time Jeremiah 8 has been been written, Israel is in captivity in Babylon and has been for a long time and they have been praying to the Lord. Lord, we want to go back to our home country. Lord, we want to go back to our home country. We want to return to our homeland. Let me let you in on a little secret. As much as I love you guys and as much as I enjoy the country of England, can I tell you this? At about 8.15, 8.20 on Thursday morning when I board a plane here in Birmingham and fly to, to, to Germany and then from Germany to Chicago, Illinois, and then from Chicago, Illinois, ultimately to Charlotte, North Carolina. When I arrive in North Carolina, can I tell you something? I'm going to be glad to be home. Not that I don't love you guys, but I'm looking forward to getting home. Home is a special place. Would you agree? Can you imagine being in captivity for decades, praying, God, please let us go home. Release us from our captivity in Babylon and God not hearing your prayer. Well, why is God not hearing Israel's prayer? Look again at verse number 15. We look for peace. In other words, we've been anticipating a time of peace when we would be allowed to go back to our home country. We have looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health, and behold, trouble. In other words, God, we've been asking you, let us go home, let us go home. But Lord, you've not answered. And it seems like you've just continued to bring upon us trouble, upon trouble, upon trouble. What Israel is saying is, Lord, why aren't you answering our prayer? Look down at verse number 19. God answers them and tells them why he's not letting them go home. Look at verse 19. Behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people. Because of them that dwell in a far country. That far country is a reference to their captivity in Babylon. And look, if you would, please, at the middle of the verse. Again, this is Israel speaking, and they're complaining to the Lord. And they say this, is not the Lord in Zion? 
Is not her king in her? Would you look up for a minute? What they're saying is this. Lord, it's like you don't even exist anymore. It's like you're not up there. We've been asking you, please let us go home. Lord, you are still up there, aren't you? You are still king in Zion. You start, are still on the throne, aren't you? Can I tell you, God is always on the throne and always will be. But it's like he's not hearing them. Why is God not responding? Look at the end of verse number 19. Because God speaks for the first time in this chapter and he tells his people that he loves dearly why he's not letting them go home. Look what he says. It's in the form of a question, but it's more than anything, a statement of why he's not allowing them to go home. He says to them, why have you provoked me to anger or why have they provoked me? The nation of Israel provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities. Now what God is saying is this, here's why I'm not answering your prayer. You're a nation full of graven images, strange vanities. You're a nation that worships idols. In other words, you're calling me God with your lips, but you're not treating me like I'm God with your life. Now, I don't know about you, but in my country of America, we have a lot of idolatry. You say, oh, Brother Dave, we don't have idolatry in England. We don't have statues, you know, that we carve out of wood or stone and then overlay them with gold and decorate them with beautiful gemstones. We don't bow down to statues like that. No, we don't in our country much either, but we still have idolatry in America. Our idols in America have shiny wheels on them. And we drive our idols on roadways in America. Our idols in America have mercury outboard engines on the back of them. And we take those boats and we drive them around a lake on Sunday morning when we should be in the house of God. Our idols have big white columns out in front of them and are made out of brick and sometimes out of wood. The houses we live in sometimes we make into our idols. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Anything that's put in the place of God, put ahead of God, can become an idol. And Israel was full of idolatry. The reason I'm not letting you go home is because of your idol worship. I want you to look now at verse number 20. After God says that to the people that he loves dearly, but they're still full of idolatry, Israel says something to God, and it's Israel speaking in verse 20, and they say this, the harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not, what's the word again? Do you know the word saved literally means delivered? The harvest is come and gone. The summer's over and done. And we're not delivered, specifically delivered from our captivity in Babylon. Now, guys, look, I want to talk to you from my heart very, very seriously here for a couple of minutes. While that's the context of verse 20, that verse is a phenomenal statement about a single word that I want to just share with you from my heart and talk to you about very, very candidly. And that word is opportunity. Opportunity. Do you understand from Jeremiah 8 verse 20, opportunity has three features to it. Number one, opportunity has a seasonal character. You say, I don't understand what that means. A seasonal character. Watch, I want to show you something. Israel's in captivity in Babylon. They're begging God, let us go home. God's not answering. It's like he's delaying letting them go home. So in verse 20, they make this statement, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not delivered, saved, delivered from our captivity in Babylon. What are they saying when they say the harvest is past, the summer is ended? Do you know in Israel's day when God does choose to let them go home from Babylon, which he ultimately does, do you know when he does allow them to go home, they're not going to hop on an airplane and fly from Babylon back to the land of Israel like I'm going to do on Thursday when I fly back to America? 
They're not going to hop on a train and take a train from Babylon back to the land of Israel. They're not going to get in an automobile and drive in an automobile from Babylon back to the land of Israel. No, when they're released from their captivity, they will make their journey from Babylon back to the land of Israel on foot. Do you know there were only two seasons of the year conducive, suitable for a journey on foot from Babylon back to the land of Israel? Two times in the year where the weather conditions would be appropriate for them to make a journey on foot from Babylon back to the land of Israel. And those two seasons of the year were harvest time. Basically, our months of March, April, and May in, in America, basically the springtime of the year, or the summertime, basically the months of June, July, and August in the Western world. Those were the only two seasons of the year where the weather would be warm enough, the conditions would be appropriate for them to make a journey on foot from Babylon back to the land of Israel. But see, here's the problem. In verse 20, they say the harvest is past. The summer is over. What they're doing is they're calculating. The weather conditions now are no longer suitable for our journey from Babylon back to the land of Israel if God were to release us. So they're calculating and they're thinking, you know what, it's going to be another nine months, maybe as much as 12 months until we cycle through the seasons and the weather conditions are appropriate for us to make our trip from Babylon back to the land of Israel when God chooses to release us. There was a seasonal character to their opportunity. You know the same thing's true in life, spiritually. There are some things that come your way that only come one time, and they don't come again. If you don't seize the opportunity when it's passing in front of you, it's gone forever. The fact is, there may be someone in this room that still does not know Christ as Savior. And this morning, an opportunity for you to receive the Lord is going to come right in front of you. If you don't seize it and grab that opportunity now, it may be gone forever. God is not obligated to keep giving you opportunity after opportunity. That's why the Bible says, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. If you're hearing God's voice, don't push Him away. Seize your opportunity while you have it. Could I hear an amen right there? Now's your chance. Opportunity has a seasonal character. Look again at verse number 20. Not only does opportunity have a seasonal character, but opportunity has a specific chronology. A specific chronology. Look at the words again. Jeremiah eight twenty. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. Now look up for a minute. For something to end, it has to start. For something to conclude, it has to have a beginning. What they're saying is this, the harvest has come and gone. It's past. The summer's over and done. It's past. Just like seasons of the year have a starting point and an ending point, you know your opportunity to trust Christ has a starting point and an ending point? Let me explain my testimony to you. I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad pastored for about... 40 years before the Lord took him home in 1999. I grew up in a preacher's home, just me and my twin brother. I heard the gospel. I heard that Jesus loved me from the time I was just a little boy. When did my opportunity to trust Christ begin? Do you know it began whenever I understood the gospel and the claims of Jesus on my life? By the way, your chance to get saved begins when you understand the gospel and the claims of Jesus on your life. When does my opportunity, Dave, end? When do I get my last chance to trust the Lord? Can I say this? Your opportunity ends when you die. When you draw your last breath, your opportunity to trust Christ is over. 
By the way, in Luke chapter number 16, there was a rich man who lived his entire life without any regard for God. And the Bible says he died and in hell immediately, literally, when he died, he opened his eyes in hell. And the Bible says he prayed a mercy prayer. He prayed, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. I, I need help. Send somebody to dip the tips of their fingers in water and splash it on my tongue. I'm tormented in this flame. He's praying for mercy. And do you know the answer he's given basically in that chapter is this? I'm sorry. It's too late for mercy. Hey, guys, when we step through that doorway called death, and we step from this life on this earth into the eternal realm, what you've done with Jesus, whether you've chosen to accept him or reject him, that determines your eternal destiny. There is no second chance after you die. Your opportunity is over. What I'm thankful for is this. As a six-year-old boy, I understood clearly that Jesus loved me. I understood that I was a sinner, but in spite of that, Jesus loved me enough to die on that old rugged cross. He was buried and rose again the third day. And as a six-year-old boy, from the sincerity of my heart, I asked Jesus to forgive me and save me. And he came into my heart and life and he forgave my sin. And I was born again. Amen. My opportunity I took. What if I had done this? What if I'd rejected Christ and rejected Christ and rejected Christ? And then at some point, as I have seen happen on many occasions, even with young people, what if I had had some tragedy happen to me? And even though I grew up in a preacher's home, I died without Jesus Christ. There is no second chance after death. Here's your opportunity right now while you're breathing oxygen. Why don't you call on the Lord and be saved? Opportunity has a specific chronology. It starts, it ends. It ends when you die. Your opportunity to trust Christ begins when you understand the gospel. So if you don't know the Lord, this is your chance. It's passing in front of you. Don't miss it. I want you to see a third thing about opportunity. Not only does opportunity have a seasonal character and a specific chronology, if... You ignore your opportunity. There's always, number three, a serious consequence. Look at verse number 20 again. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not, what's the word again? Again, in Israel's case, the word means delivered. The harvest is come and gone. The summer's over and done. We're not delivered from our captivity in Babylon. You understand it's one thing not to be delivered from your captivity in Babylon. It's something else altogether to still be held captive by your sin and not be delivered yet from your sin. The consequences of that are eternally serious. In 1871, behind a pulpit not altogether that much different from this one, one of the greatest preachers in the country of America stood. It was a Sunday evening. The preacher's name was Dwight Lyman Moody. We affectionately call him D.L. Moody. How many of you ever heard of him? He was a shoe salesman that God had called to be an evangelist. He had very little formal training, but God empowered him and used him in a great way. And in 1871, he stood behind a pulpit like this in the city of Chicago in his church, and he preached a sermon on the claims of Jesus Christ on the souls of about 1,500 people that were listening to him that night. All of a sudden, toward the end of his message, he heard a siren go off. 
Frequently, those sirens would signal in the city of Chicago. He didn't know what was going on, didn't know what the siren was announcing, but he knew it was something serious if all the city could hear the siren. So he very quickly did something that he never did up to that point, and that is he dismissed his congregation that night without giving them what we call an invitation to trust Jesus Christ as Savior. In fact, when I was at Moody Bible Institute and Moody Church in Chicago several years ago, my tour guide took me through the college and through the church and he told me the entire story. He said, Dave, here is the phrase D.L. Moody used as he dismissed the congregation quickly that evening. He said these words and I quote, you have heard of the claims of Jesus on your soul. I implore you to come back to this church one week from now and in one week I will tell you how you can call on Jesus and be saved. And he quickly dismissed the congregation sending them out into the darkness of the night, not knowing the siren that he and everybody in the auditorium had heard was signaling a catastrophe in the city of Chicago, a catastrophe called the Chicago Fire. Any of you ever heard of the Chicago Fire? By the way, I learned about the Chicago Fire when I was a little boy in elementary school through a song an elementary, student, an elementary school teacher taught us as students and the song goes like this. One autumn night when we were all in bed, oh, Mother Leary took a lantern to her shed. And when the cow kicked it over, she winked her eye and said, it'll be a hot time in the old town tonight. Any of you ever heard that before? Popular song in America. Do you know that song is not just a popular song? It told the truth of what happened that evening in 1871. A woman named Catherine O'Leary. One autumn night when we were all in bed, oh, Mother Leary took a lantern to the shed. Catherine O'Leary took a lantern to the barn that was attached to their home in inner city Chicago. Whether a cow kicked the lantern over or not is not known, but evidently she set the lantern down. Something caused it to turn over. The fire from the lantern caught in the straw in the barn, spread quickly throughout the barn, engulfed the barn in flames, spread over to the O'Leary house, and from their house jumped to the other houses that were attached to the O'Leary house and ultimately spread throughout the entire city of Chicago. And that night, hundreds of homes were destroyed. Hundreds of lives were lost. D.L. Moody, not knowing the siren was signaling the Chicago fire, dismissed the congregation with these words, I implore you to return to this church one week from now, and one week from now I will tell you how you can be saved. The only problem, guys, is this. One week later, there was no church to come to. Moody's church was destroyed in the fire. Many of those that listened to him that night could not return for another reason because they lost their life in the fire. One week later, they were no longer alive. Do you know what my tour guide told me? He said, Dave D.L. Moody never got over that. As a preacher of the gospel, he never got over that night. In fact, he sank into some depression for a number of months over it because, according to Moody's own words, he said, I had, as it were, that night when I was preaching, I had, as it were, in my hands 1,500 souls that many of them didn't know the Lord, and I didn't do what I always did. I did not give them an invitation. I did not invite them to call on Jesus in my haste to get them out of the building and uh, signal, get them away from that signaling alarm and get them home. I didn't give them an invitation to trust Christ. He never got over it. That was 1871. Now watch. 
Moody continued pastoring that historic church in Chicago until 1899. Upon his death in 1899, the Moody Church in Chicago called their second pastor, a gentleman by the name of A.C. Dixon. From 1899 to 1912, A.C. Dixon pastored that historic church. But upon his retirement in 1912, the Moody Church in Chicago called their third pastor. By the way, a gentleman from Scotland, an evangelist like myself, this gentleman had preached behind the pulpit of the Moody Church in Chicago many times, but always as a guest evangelist. However, the people loved him. They loved his passion for souls. They loved his passion for the Word of God. They loved his ability to preach the Word of God. And so they thought, we will extend an invitation to this Scottish preacher to become our third pastor. And so they notified him of their desire. Would you consider becoming our pastor? And this gentleman prayed about it, felt it was God's will. And so John Harper, Scotsman, accepted the call to become pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago. Though he felt it was God's will, though he accepted the call, do you know John Harper never preached one day behind that pulpit in Chicago, Illinois? Not one day, not as pastor. You say, why not? Listen, guys, though he boarded a ship in this country, England, that would carry him from England to America to assume the pastorate of that church, he never preached one day behind that pulpit. Why not? Because the ship he boarded that would carry him from England to America, yes, had the name Titanic written down the side of it. And out in the icy waters of the North Atlantic, the Titanic scraped alongside an iceberg you remember the story? By the way, I watched a Discovery Channel special a number of years ago. They used to say that the iceberg ripped a hole in the hull of the Titanic. Now they have gone down, they've actually excavated and viewed with a little submarine the Titanic as it rests on the ocean floor. And they've realized that the iceberg didn't actually rip a hole in the hull of the ship at all. What happened was this. The builders of the Titanic, when they overlapped the steel of that ship and riveted the steel together with massive rivets, in their haste to build the unsinkable ship, rather than using solid steel rivets, according to the Discovery Channel special I watched, they mixed a thing called slag with the rivets, which would make the rivets easier to drive into the overlapped steel. But under the frigid temperatures that night in the North Atlantic, it would make those rivets very brittle. So when they scraped alongside the iceberg, the iceberg didn't rip a hole in the hull. It just popped the rivets open. Do you know the ship would have made it had the builders not been in haste to get it built? It popped the rivets open and four of the five watertight compartments began to flood with water. And the unsinkable ship went down in just over two hours, almost record time. John Harper was aboard. My tour guide at Moody said, here's what survivors of that tragedy said John Harper did. He had his daughter on board ship with him. He had his niece on board ship with him. His wife was going to come to America later. He took his daughter, put her into a lifeboat, took his niece, put her into a lifeboat. They said he leaned over and kissed both of the girls goodbye. And then as they're lowering the lifeboat into the water, John Harper raised his right hand and waved at his daughter and niece and literally said this, Girls, I'll see you on the other side. Not talking about America. Talking about heaven. Once the lifeboat was in the water and the rowers rowed it a safe distance away from the sinking ship, 
According to my tour guide at Moody Bible Institute, he said survivors said that John Harper turned his body, waved one last time to his daughter and niece, and then started looking up the ever-increasing sloping deck of the Titanic as it's beginning to sink. He cupped his hands, guys, and he began to scream into the night sky, All women! All children and all unsaved, quickly get into the lifeboats. If you're a woman, a child, but especially if you're unsaved, get into the lifeboats. And he continued yelling that until the pitch of the ship almost went vertical. If you've seen one of the Titanic movies, they portray it very, very accurately. There was what they thought was a tremendous explosion. It was not an explosion at all. It was the hull of the Titanic breaking in half under the enormous pressure. And at that point, my tour guide said, John Harper realized, if I don't get off this ship, when it submerges, I will be sucked under and I will drown. So wearing only his life vest, he jumped into the icy waters and swam as fast as he could to get away from the sinking ship. He's now floating among lifeboats, some of which were only half full. Do you know person after person offered to pull him into the lifeboat? He declined. No, what he did, brother, was this. He swam among the lifeboats and he would look at the occupants in the lifeboats and he would say this, can I tell you folks how you can know Jesus as your Savior? If you're not prepared for eternity, can I tell you how you can know that Jesus can forgive your sin? And for a half hour, he swam among the lifeboats witnessing like we did yesterday in the bull ring. Something that evening pushed him to the left if you know anything about that night when the Titanic sank, the thing that has troubled people for years is that the ocean surface was not rough. It was as placid as it could be, almost as smooth as glass. So this was not a wave pushing him. It was not the wind pushing him. It had to be God pushing him to the left. He's now up in the presence, and I'll use you as my illustration, of a young man who's clinging tenaciously to a piece of timber from the sinking ship. And John Harper looks at this young man and said, Young man, can I tell you how you can know Jesus as your Savior? And unbelievably, the young man said, I'm not interested. By the way, yesterday, did you notice if you were handing out gospel leaflets? You'd extend one to people and they'd, or they'd go, no thank you. John Harper said, can I tell you how you can know Jesus? That young man hanging to a piece of wood said, I'm not interested. My tour guide at Moody said, here's what John Harper did. He removed his life vest. He extended it to the young man and said, young man, if you don't think you need Jesus, you need the life jacket way more than I do. And he gave his life vest away. Swim over here to a couple of boats and said, folks, can I tell you how you can be saved? For another 20 minutes, John Harper is floating in that icy water, which in and of itself had to be a miracle that he didn't freeze to death and go into shock within the amount of time he was in the water. God was keeping him alive for a reason. Finally, something pushed him to the left again. My tour guide said, Dave, John Harper is again looking at a young man wearing a life vest, floating in the water. It's the very young man he'd given his life jacket to about 20 minutes earlier. But shock's beginning to set in, and John Harper didn't realize it was a young man he'd already talked to. So thinking he's talking to him for the first time, he said to the young man, young man, can I share with you how Jesus can become your Savior? And realizing he's getting a second opportunity. The young man said, I think I'll listen. The last act John Harper performed was giving the gospel to that young man and leading him to Jesus Christ. 
My tour guide said this. At that point, John Harper is taking his hands, which are under the surface of the water. His arms are almost frozen to his side, and he's trying to keep his head above the water so he can speak. He realizes, I'm not going to make it. So he just tips his head backwards, floats in the water for a few seconds, long enough to scream into the night sky this statement. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. My tour guide said at that point, eyewitnesses said John Harper went below the surface of the water and never came back up again. Brother, I had a guy ask me, why would he die like that? Can I tell you why? Because he lived like that. He lived like that. And you know what, brother? I don't know this, but my tour guide said, Dave, do you know what we think here at Moody? He said, we think Mr. Harper knew he's on his way to become pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. We think Mr. Harper was thinking that night, probably, that two preachers ahead of him, D.L. Moody had about the same number of people under the sound of his voice one night. And he heard an alarm. And in his haste to get the people out of the building, he did not give them an opportunity to call on Jesus and be saved. We think John Harper was thinking that. And so with his dying breath, he said, I'm not going to be guilty of what Mr. Moody was guilty of. With my dying breath, I'm going to give him an opportunity to call on the Lord. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you will, you'll be saved. Guys, hear me. We're not on a boat this morning. We're in a building. And you're going to be prone to think this. Because I'm in a building, because I'm young, because, you know, everything's going great for me right now, I don't need to be worried about an opportunity passing in front of me to receive Jesus as my Savior. Man, I've got plenty of time to make that decision. You don't know that. Neither do I. I'm so glad that as a six-year-old boy, I took care of that. and Made the decision and seized the opportunity to come to Christ. Guys, here's the deal. I don't know if you thought about it like I did yesterday. But passing us while we were down in the bullring were literally thousands of people. Almost every one of them, almost every one of them is not ready to die. That means this, we were there yesterday offering them an opportunity to call on Jesus. A few took up our offer for a gospel leaflet, the vast majority said, not interested. What I'm trying to help you understand, guys, is this. When you leave today, I hope you understand we're here on this earth if we know Christ as Savior to extend an opportunity to people to call on the Lord. Could I hear an amen there? It's not about us. We are upstream people in a downstream world the vast majority of this country, like my country, cares nothing about what Jesus wants for their life. They care nothing about His gospel. But we're here, appointed by God, to give them that opportunity. Hope you'll seize this moment. And if you know Christ as Savior, hope you'll start speaking up and sharing the good news boldly. And if you don't know Christ, 
opportunities passing in front of you. I hope you'll seize it. One last thing and I'm done. You guys will never forget. I know I never will. 9-11-2001. There's a lot of things about that day that are vividly etched in my mind. I remember where I was when I found out that terrorists were attacking the World Trade Center complex in New York, that the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. had been hit by an airplane, that there was another plane in the air making its way to Washington, D.C., and the target was either the White House or the United States Capitol building. I remember exactly where I was when I heard every bit of that. I was sitting in the cab of a pickup truck. I just dropped a gentleman off at the airport in Portland, Oregon. I'd gotten in my truck, was headed back to the place where I was staying that week, and I turned on the radio dial just to catch the early morning news, and I heard our president. I heard our president, George W. Bush, say this. This was a deliberate terrorist act. I thought he was talking about something in a foreign country. I had no clue he was talking about something in America. I followed his schedule very religiously at that time. I knew every place he was supposed to be each day so I could pray specifically for him. And I knew that day he was supposed to be in Florida, the state of Florida, in an elementary school classroom reading to some children. So that is where he was. But he's saying this was a deliberate terrorist act. I thought, man, he's talking about something that's happened well outside the United States. Of course he wasn't. And the more I listened, the more aware I became. Man, we're under attack in America. Man, I'm sorry. I broke the speed limit that day. I put the throttle to the floor. I got back to where I was staying as fast as I could. I went inside where my wife was and I said, Honey, come around, pull a chair in front of the television set. America's under attack. And we sat for the next three hours in front of a television. And we watched the north and south tower of the World Trade Center engulfed in flames. We watched both buildings collapse. We followed all the news reports for three hours. After three hours, my mind raced to a friend of mine named Niles Light. He's an FBI agent for years, 25 years at that time. He'd served in the FBI, and I thought, man, Niles is in New York. He's right in the middle of all of this that's going on. So I grabbed my cell phone, punched his number in, waited for him to answer, and he did not answer, but his wife answered. She said, this is Darlene. I said, Darlene, this is Dave Kistler. I said, I'm watching everything that's going on in New York. Have you heard from your husband? She began to tear up, and she said, I hadn't heard a word. I said, now, darling, look, your husband's a very smart man. He's a very savvy guy. I'm sure he's going to be fine, but I said, I want to make a request. When you do hear from him, would you just take 15 seconds and call me and tell me that you've heard from him and that he's okay? She said, Mr. Kistler, I promise I will call you. I said, thank you so much. Hung up. 30 minutes passed. I got the first of two phone calls, and it was from not Darlene Light. It was from their daughter, Carrie. She said, Mr. Kistler, this is Carrie Light. My mom asked me to call you and tell you that a third party... A third party in the FBI has seen Daddy from a distance, and they called to tell us that they know he's alive, but we have not yet heard from him. I said, Kerry, thank you so much for letting me know. I said, would either you or your mom call me when one of you do talk to your dad? She said, I promise we'll do that. Fifteen minutes later, I got the second phone call. This time it was the wife, and Darlene said, Brother Kistler, I just literally finished a 20-second phone conversation with my husband. He called and said, look, I'm fine. Don't worry about me, but i got to get back to work. And he hung up. Niles did not know that the next two weeks he would spend around the clock working in New York, sifting through debris of the collapsed North and South Tower. By the way, he told me this, and again, I'm not trying to, trying to make you sick, but he said, we brought in bulldozers and sifted through the concrete of those collapsed buildings 
And he said, we carried all of that stuff in dump trucks to an independent location away from the World Trade Center complex. And we would dump it all there. And he said, we could always tell where the body parts were because the seagulls would land on the piles of debris where there were body parts. And so we knew we needed to check there to find human remains. Two weeks he sifted through debris. He's a tough guy, but he's a committed Christian. Three months after the 9-11 tragedy, I sat in Niles home. And he said, Dave, I want to show you something. And on his coffee table, he laid out about 200 pictures, various ones at a time, and then he'd put a new section of pictures out. And I looked at about 200 pictures, some of which he had taken himself the day the 9-11 tragedy occurred. He was at FBI headquarters, which is six blocks from the former World Trade Center complex. He said, when the first plane went in and we realized the plane had hit the building, he said, man, it was a beautiful day. I mean, not a cloud in the sky. We thought, man, how in the world could a pilot not see that massive building? We thought it was an accident. We thought it was a small engine plane. He said, we had no idea it was a passenger jet and it was done deliberately. But he said, when the second plane hit, we realized this is not a coincidence. This is not accidental. We are under a terrorist attack. And he said, I said to my men at FBI headquarters, grab your jackets, get your weapons. We're going to walk the six blocks from FBI headquarters down to the World Trade Center complex. He said to a man, every one of them had left their jackets in their automobiles in the parking deck. He said it took them about 10 minutes to go to their cars, retrieve their, their blue jackets with the yellow letters on the back, FBI. He said that 10 minutes saved our lives. He said we get our jackets on, get our weapons, map out our strategy. He said we had walked three blocks from FBI headquarters down to the World Trade Center complex. We are three blocks away from both our home base, three blocks away from those twin towers. He said when the first tower began to collapse, he said I watched it start to fall. I'm three blocks away. He said, I ducked into a doorway to avoid the rush of the debris that's coming like a nuclear explosion past us. And he said, when all that debris and dust got past and everything kind of began to settle down, he said, man, there was dust in the air everywhere. But he said, I literally stepped out of the doorway. He had a camera on his phone in his pocket that he took out. And he said, I aimed it at the tower that was still standing. And he said, I began to snap pictures through the dust and debris. He said, Dave, I counted... I literally counted them. There were 200 of these people we called jumpers. They choose to jump out of a tall building and fall to their death. He said, I counted 200 of them. He had pictures there. Through the debris, you could see the pictures of people coming out of the North Tower. He had snapped the pictures and he's got them on his coffee table. He said, Dave, have you ever wondered what would motivate someone to jump out of a 104th floor of a 105th floor building? Have you ever wondered why they would choose to die by falling? Before I could answer, he answered. He said, Dave, let me tell you why they jumped. Because inside that building that day, when those planes crashed into it, those planes are fueled by a thing called JP-1 jet fuel. It's a derivative of diesel fuel, but it's highly volatile. And he said that stuff erupted inside that building when the plane hit it. That fuel ran down elevator shafts. It ran down the outside of the building. It saturated carpet. And as all of this stuff is on fire, he said we estimate that the temperature inside that building was in excess of 2,000 degrees. He said those people chose to die by falling rather than dying by fire. Now, folks, listen, this is important. 
Do you understand people that die without Jesus go to a literal hell where there's fire and it's way in excess of 2,000 degrees and there is no way to jump out or crawl out? Those people we passed yesterday at the bullring, most of them are on their way to hell. Does that move you? It does me. All of that that Miles shared with me changed my life. But I want to tell you what changed my life more than anything he said to me. It was a phone conversation I got the privilege to listen to. By the way, the text of the conversation was printed in a lot of U.S. newspapers. But I actually got the privilege of listening to the actual phone call. It was a little stewardess on United Airlines Flight 175. That was the airplane that was flown into the second tower. When she realized we've been hijacked, she went to the back of the plane where she and all the passengers had been herded to the very back of the plane. She took her cell phone. They're flying very low, approaching New York City. She, at this time, cannot see any of the landmark buildings in New York, but they're flying low enough that she can make a phone call. So she called her boss at United Airlines and she said this, we've been commandeered. That's the term she used. We've been commandeered. We've been hijacked. She said, I think the pilot and co-pilot are dead. They've taken sharp objects and slit their throats and terrorists have taken over the airplane. And her boss at United Airlines said this, can you see anything? And she must have looked out the little portal window at the back of the plane and she said, all I see is water. He said, take a second look. Can you see anything else? Any buildings? She said, all I see is water. And she started to say water again. And she must have caught a glimpse of one of the buildings of New York. And being a veteran, veteran flyer, many times she had landed at New York's LaGuardia Airport or Kennedy Airport in New York. She knew we're flying way too low to be making a landing. And it began to hit her what was coming. All I see is... She didn't say water. She screamed, pardon me for doing it. She screamed into her phone, Oh my God! And then silence. Because as she's screaming, that terrorist pilot is turning the wings of the plane like this, so when it embeds itself in the side of that tall building, it doesn't just take out one floor, it takes out four or five. She saw what was coming. Oh my God. Guys, you know what I've wondered? What did she mean by that? Oh my God, I didn't plan on dying today. Oh my God, I'm going to die and I'm not ready for eternity. And what was she saying? Guys, I don't know about you. My life was changed when I heard that. And I understood again there's an opportunity passing in front of every person that doesn't know the Lord. And if I do know Christ, which I do, it's my obligation to share the gospel with Him. And if you don't know the Lord, boy, if I were you, I'd seize my opportunity right now. Because it's passing. And it may not come back again. That's why the Bible again says now's the accepted time. Today's the day of salvation. Father, would you speak to us this morning? Father, if there's a young man or a young lady in this room that does not yet know you as Savior, Father, would you speak to them clearly and help them to understand an opportunity is passing right in front of them at this moment.
an opportunity to make a choice, the most important choice they'll ever make in life, the choice to accept you as Savior. And Father, I pray with everything that's in me, I pray, Lord, they would not push you away as so many did yesterday down in the bullring. But Lord, rather than doing that, I pray they'd understand their need and they would come to you and before it is eternally too late, they'd call on you, Jesus, and be saved. Father, help those of us that do know you to be motivated by a clear understanding that an opportunity is passing in front of our friends and neighbors, our co-workers, our family members that don't know you. Lord, we have an obligation, Your Lord, even a privilege, an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And so, Lord, may we seize these moments seize these opportunities and speak up boldly and courageously with the gospel. Father, for what you do in each of our lives, we'll thank you and give you great praise. Now, folks, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to ask you a couple of questions. I'm not asking this morning, are you religious? I'm not asking, do you attend a church? What I'm asking this morning is this, do you know that Jesus is your Savior? Do you know that if something really weird were to happen today, something man, you really didn't plan on, and your life were to end abruptly? I mean, you've been breathing oxygen already several hundred, if not maybe well over a thousand times since you got up this morning. But all of a sudden you couldn't get oxygen into your lungs and you couldn't breathe and you were to die. If that were to happen today, do you know... At the moment you closed your eyes in death, do you know you'd go to heaven? Well, Dave, I think I would. That's not what I'm asking. I'm not asking, do you think? Well, Dave, I'm reasonably sure I would. That's not what I'm asking either. I'm asking, do you know? Are you willing to stake your eternal future on your answer? Because that is what you're about to do. If you can say, yes, Dave, I know. I know that Jesus is my Savior. I know that if my life were to come to an end today, I know I'd go to heaven. Because there's been a time in my life when I asked Jesus to forgive me and save me, and He did. And I know I'd go to heaven if my life were to end today. If you know that's true, you'd go to heaven if your life were to end today. Would you just lift your hand long enough for me to see it? Dave, I know, I know, I know I'd go to heaven if I were to die today. I know I would. Thank you. God bless you. You may put your hand down. Is there anyone in the room that does not know? You do not yet know for sure that if your life were to end today, you'd go to heaven. But God's been speaking to you about this. You'd be willing to say, Dave, look, here's the deal. I don't really know. I don't know that I'm going to heaven. I don't know that for sure. But man, I am sure concerned about it, and you need to be. I'm concerned enough, Dave, about my own eternal future that I'd like you to pray for me. I'd love to have the privilege of praying for you, not by using your name in my prayer. I would never do that. But I sure would like to pray for you that before it's too late, you'll be saved. Is there anyone in the room that would say, Dave, you're talking to me. I don't yet know for sure that if my life were to end today that I'd go to heaven. But I sure would like you to pray for me. Is there anyone like that? And you'd lift your hand right now long enough for me to see you. I'll take note of it and then pray. All right, one final question. If you know Christ, if you're saved... God's left you here and He's left me here for a reason. And that's to bear that message, carry it, to a world that does not know. See, if we knew, if I knew, and I have friends in Washington, D.C., very close friends, 
They tell me what they can, a lot of things they can't tell me. But I get updates periodically about the terror threat level. That's what they call it. Terror threat level, TTL. Dave, the terror threat level's up. Terror threat level is reduced today a little bit, not as high threat level. Hey, if we knew something was going to happen to someone physically, someone was going to walk into a marketplace somewhere with a bomb strapped to their body underneath their clothing and detonate that bomb and try to kill a lot of people, if we knew that was going to happen and we knew where it was going to happen, we would do something about it. We'd say something. We'd try to prevent the horrific attack. We'd try to save lives is what I'm trying to say. On a far much bigger level, we know something as Christians. We know there's an eternity awaiting those that don't know Christ. Why aren't we saying something? Why aren't we being more aggressive? Why aren't we being more bold? This is all I want to leave with you. Please consider what I've said today. There's an opportunity passing for your friends. Carry the message to them. There's an opportunity passing in front of those in this city, the city where you live. Let's carry the message to them boldly. Father, I pray. I pray, oh God, that you would literally transform the way we think. And Lord, place on our heart a burden, a burden that can't be quenched, a burden that shows for us clearly we have an obligation, a responsibility to carry the message of the gospel. And Father, I pray you'd help us to be bold about this. Father, help us not to be afraid. Help us not to fear the faces of people who may reject our message. Lord, help, help us to understand they rejected you. But Lord, may we be bold about our witness and may we be consistent, faithful. And Father, may we speak up like we've never spoken up after this conference comes to an end. Father, knowing, knowing that we are your ambassadors on this earth to tell those who don't know you how they can know you. Now, Father, bless these young people. Lord, again, my heart is so encouraged by what I've seen this week. And Lord, I would pray, I would pray, oh God, that when this day ends, that these young people would not forget what they've heard, that Lord, they'd be motivated to be different when they return home. Father, we'll thank you for all that you do and continue to do in each of our lives. For it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that I do pray.